welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Somaru. Hey everybody, my guest today is Rudy Benfredge, and he's the co-founder and CEO at Mendelian, who aim to help doctors diagnose rare diseases faster using their software called MendelScan. So Rudy himself is a computer scientist by background. He graduated from Imperial College London with a degree in engineering. He has worked in bioengineering, he's worked in artificial intelligence, uh, hugely passionate about health. Uh, he moved to Tel Aviv uh, to work at an Israeli medtech diagnostics company called Healthy.io, which I'm sure a few of you know. And he actually set up TEDMED in London uh, at the Royal Albert Hall, getting 5,000 attendees for a day of talks. But anyway, Rudy talks all about his background and what they're up to at Mandelian on this episode. It's an awesome company, awesome guy. Hope you enjoy it. So, Rudy, welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing, mate? Yeah, great. Thanks, James. Really excited. You're sporting a very, uh, very nice uh, pink robe. <laughs> I'll just call out for the people that can't actually see you. <laughs> Thanks for that. I thought this was going to stay between us, but I get it. <laughs> Looks very patching, mate. Love it. Um, whereabouts are you speaking to us from today, Rudy? Oh, I'm actually in Mexico. Uh, I've been oh, here since, uh, since the break. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been, it's been quite... Quite interesting to work here because I'm still working European hours. So I'm waking in the middle of the night and doing oh, all the wow. calls. And by 12, I'm pretty much done. So I did it's, think it's cool. that you were, it's an interesting um, lifestyle. Yeah, I did think <laughs> that you were applying a little bit early, but then it makes sense now. Which coast are you on? Central. Oh, you're central. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. yeah. I was thinking that you were finishing at 12 to like go out surfing or something. Or... <laughs> I wish. No. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough, mate. Fair enough. Um, listen, mate, the way that we start these podcasts is uh, I get you to tell your story, as you know, now that you've listened to a couple. Um, so, yeah, obviously, I know you really well. Um, we've done various bits and bobs together. But um, I guess for the benefit of our listeners, mate, why don't you tell us a bit of your story? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it was, was pleasure. I mean, uh, you know, I'm still, I'm still quite uh, new to this game. Uh, Mandalian is kind of my, my, my first uh, company. And so I'll tell you a little bit about how, how it came about. But Mostly, uh, I'm, I'm a computer scientist by, by background, so I studied here um, for, for some time in, in London, and I was just really into, I wasn't sure if I wanted to be a doctor um, before studying my, my college, and um, I think I realized that if I really wanted to be a very good doctor in the next 15 years, then maybe it would be easier to be a computer scientist first. And so for a long time, the plan was to start in computer science and then become a doctor. Um, but what I did instead is after, after graduation, instead of going to the kind of the big tech um, groups. I, I, I went and worked for, for a small startup um, in health tech. And this kind of really opened my eyes. I, I really loved it. I was, you know, it was a small team. I was one of the first kind of employees there. And I, I really loved it. It was, it was amazing. It was a company called Healthy.io. Incredible company in so many, so many yeah. ways. Not so small now. Yeah, not so small now. It's, <laughs> uh, yeah, they, 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 they really kind of opened my eyes to what, what scale was in digital health. Yeah. I think this is really what it's about. What, what, when, we look, when we look at medicine today is, you know, the, the big differentiation between kind of previous medicine and digital medicine and, and current medicine is really the scale at which you can apply it, right? So yeah. like understanding how much the doctors are going to have impact on, you know, millions of life rather than, than a few or, you know, the thousands that they would see during their lifetime. And I think, um, I think Healthy I understood that very quickly and very fast. And, and I really love that. Um, so I did a, a, a small gig there and then I, I moved to San Francisco, actually. I wanted to see what was happening on that side still because of the tech calling. 
So I was uh, I was based in Mountain View for a bit. I, I did a program there called, uh, it was a weird thing. It was half of an accelerator, half of a think tank. It's called the Singularity University. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, yeah, at the time it was, so Daniel it was quite Kraft, is that is that Singularity? Yeah, he's he's yeah. one of the faculty members, yeah, especially in the, in the health tech side. And uh, I mean, it was an incredible experience, totally, you know, life-changing. But what, what was interesting there is, is, you know, after the kind of scale course that I had got at, at, at Healthy, they really wanted to, to look at impact. And, and they wanted us to, you know, there was this joke going around at Singularity where you couldn't think of an idea if it didn't impact 1 billion people over the next 10 years. And wow. that was like really the, the only way that they would assess any ideas or anything that you want to do there. So it was, it was really interesting, but also super humbling experience. Of course, I was super young at the time. I was one of the youngest, mm. you know, graduate of the program. And um, it, it kind of gave us, at least it, it gave me really the, the strength to, to start thinking big and to start thinking that, you know, I, 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 could, I could actually start doing something on my own. And so I, I didn't really want to be a, an entrepreneur at the time. I was still thinking that I was going to end up, you know, working at a big tech company or something like that. But then I met incredible people while, while I was in Mountain View. And uh, it's with this, this group of people, super complimentary. There was a, a doctor, a neurologist, there's a couple of tech guys, and then a, a, a great kind of business, a bit more experienced person who, you know, went through the, the hoops of finding companies before. And then we, we, we decided to go for it and uh, um, came back to the UK about a year after that and uh, started, started Mendelian here. That's awesome, man. It's interesting about your background, isn't it? About, you know, moving locations, going to singularity. It seems that at a very kind of young age, you were almost taught to think big because it's often a time where people are just trying to get their first jobs, just trying to get by, just trying to get on the ladder, just trying to do something. Whereas, you know, you had this sort of, flip side of that which was that actually you were being told to impact a billion people in the next 10 years and all that sort of stuff do you reckon that i mean it clearly has had an effect on your thinking right because you went straight from there into in, into then building mendelian how powerful was that i suppose in comparison to let's say i don't know friends colleagues that were getting their first jobs and doing their thing that way yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, it's it's hard to know, really. I'm I'm not, you know, I'm not old enough or experienced enough to know how how it would have been different because I've I've never had a you know a, kind of a different sure. job in like in a big corporate, etc. Except the, the few internships that I've done in my life. But um, I think it it really kind of put me in a position where um, you know the, the company was was has been a, a very big part of my identity since since the very beginning. Sure. You know, like when, when kind of over the last five six years, you know, it's, it's just been so close to who I am to do what mm. I do that I think that's, that's a very important aspect of, of, you know, founding companies that sometimes people kind of overlook. Not that much that, you know, you're founding a project as if it's something that is out there. It's, it's very close, at least in my case, it's very close to who I am. And, and you know, it defines a lot of the, the way that I, you know, live my life uh, through it. So I think that that had a, a big impact on me, clearly. And where did you get the confidence from then to start Mendelian in terms of the, the belief that you could be an entrepreneur? Because, you, you, you know, you're a humble guy, right? And, and you're talking about getting this experience and, and the internships and all the rest of it. Going from that to then obviously founding a company with such a big mission and, and a big ambition, did you sort of model your way through that did you just sort of uh I don't know. <laughs> did you just sort of get out and i don't know yeah i mean I, I i don't know i i think it's not doing any good to kind of kind of glorifying the whole idea of you know finding founding companies it's you know it's mm. awesome but it's also something that you know it, everyone should do it and and you know if people are wondering whether they should start 
the best advice you, you can give them is just to tell them to start. It's, it's, it's one of these things where like, it, it sounds, it looks like a, a mountain before you, you, you climb it, but then, you know, it's, it's just not, I, I don't know. I don't remember, you know, a big step in my life where I was like, okay, I'm going to go for it because I feel confident enough that I'm going to be able to do it. It's just, you know, at some point, just going to, just going to go for it. And, you know, you, you're not taking that much risk at the end of the day. I mean, everyone has different, you know, um, 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 you know, priorities, but in my case, you know, I, I was a young graduate, um, you know, what else, what else was I going to do? I, I was just really <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> mission driven, impact driven, and you wanted to make the impact. It, it, it's so true, mate. I think people, people talk about often with me, they talk about, or they ask the question about leaving medicine in the same way. They're like, Oh, how, you know, how did you do it? Like, was it, you know, it's such a big thing. How did you make the leap? All of that sort of stuff. And I think it is similar to starting a company. It's glorified quite a lot because I think at the end of the day, when you're, when you are that young and you, you've got the ability to take risk, it's almost, that's the time where you should take risk. And that's the time where you should do the thing that isn't that common. And because you've got the opportunity to learn make mistakes, learn from those mistakes, yeah, yeah. go and do the next thing, right? And just get as much experience in the belt as possible. And it seems like it's, yeah, it, it seems like a, a great I mean, opportunity yeah. to do that stuff. Yeah, 100%. And also, you know, the amount that you can capitalize on as you start early is, is, is huge. You know, like if I look at today where I am with the company compared to where I was five years ago, obviously, you know, there's a yeah. massive difference. So the earlier you start with this, and the earlier you're going to, you know, grow your network and things are going to become interesting. Now, when you're a founder, you, you, you have so much more than just the day-to-day -day work. Like there's so much more, you know, network that you're building. Everything becomes interesting. Everything becomes relevant. You know, you become relevant. You become interesting to people. And so it's, it's just the way that, you know, you also build yourself. And so in, in my case, you know, as I said, I, I built my identity uh, as well mm. around my, my, my work. And, and I think everyone always has an opportunity to do it. And so, you know, it's, it's not that much about taking risks anymore today, starting a company, you know, you know, you, it's, it's, it's very easy to do and, mm. and people should go for it when, when they can. I love that one. So tell me about Mendelian. So let's talk about, let's talk about the idea for Mendelian and where the idea came from and then how you kind of went from idea to reality. Yeah, sure. Look, I mean, th this one is, is really a, uh, I mean, I, I really love the field that we're in. You know, it's, it's super dynamic. There's everything happening all the time. And, and, it, and it's just been amazing to see how the field has also changed over the last, you know, few years. We, we work in a, we're very focused on one thing, which is how to diagnose patients earlier, right? So, and, and, and there's a big, particularly big issue in the rare disease space, which is where we operate, uh, you know, mostly, where you have all of these patients that are waiting years and years before getting a, a diagnosis. So this, they call this the diagnostic odyssey because it, it represents as well the time and the kind of the burden of these patients going from one place to the other in the NHS or, you know, in any healthcare system being kind of pulled from pillar to post from one specialist to the other. <clears throat> and this creates a lot of frustration, obviously, on the patient side and also at, at the system, you know, side on, on the NHS. And so it, it, it's pretty, uh, you know, it's, it's a bit of a, it's, it's, it's it's an information challenge at the end of the day, you know, like uh, medicine is, is made and it's built in silo because of the specialties that the doctors, you know, need to choose, need to pick and then need to practice in. And so when you have diseases like rare disease that are very, you know, progressive, which means that the sign and symptoms are going to happen, you know, over a long period of time on the clinical pathway, they're very multi-systemic, which means that, you know, different system, biological system of the body are going to be involved. Then you, you have doctors sometimes have trouble, um, you know, identifying the clinical patterns that would allow them to find the diagnosis and find these diseases much earlier. So you add to that the fact that rare diseases are, are rare, 
individually, which means that you know each rare disease is rare, and it makes it just very difficult for the doctors to you know get to an answer quickly. And so you have this you know huge issue. Like in in the UK, it takes on average almost six years to diagnose a patient with a rare disease. And I always say that this this number. It's crazy because, you know, you also have to think about the fact that it's quite skewed to the people who got a diagnosis. What about all of the other people who've been waiting yeah, you know, 20 years, 30 years who died without knowing what, what was happening in their lives? And so there's this like huge issue, you know, for anyone who knows a little bit about rare disease. Of course, the treatment is, is important, but, you know, there's no there's no, there's nothing you can do if you don't have a diagnosis. There's, there's no hope. There's no you know, clinical trial. There is no treatment. Obviously, if you don't if you don't have a way to put a name on the disease it's just becoming very difficult to just navigate the healthcare system and also just navigate, um, you know, the, 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 your, your healthcare. And so if, if you look at this and, and you understand that it's an information challenge, the information is out there. It's just that the doctor don't really know about, about these diseases. And so you just have to make sure that you provide the information at the right place at the right time and to the right person. And so when you look at the clinical pathway, you know, we, we, we started understanding that the earlier you get an answer, the better it's going to be for the patient because at this point, there's still some treatments available. At this point, you know, the patient hasn't gone around all the healthcare system several times. And so we looked at whether we, there's something that we could do in primary care. And, and you can think of what we do really as a, you know, as, as a background scanner, really, of medical records. It, it, I, I like to say that it's pretty straightforward. The, the high level of it, the system is, is a bit more intricate, but the high level is, 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 you know, quite straightforward. I think if we were to sit down together and, and, and speak about it for a few hours, we'd probably come up to the same, to the same conclusion as, you know, you need to provide that information to the doctor. So you create models, diagnostic models or diagnostic criteria, as we call them. And you try to filter medical records based on these diagnostic criteria. It's a population health approach, if you will. And whenever these patients match or breach these thresholds that you've put in place, then you have to find a way to alert to the doctor or to highlight these patients to their GP so that, you know, you can let the GP know that these patients warrant further investigation. Um, and, and, and I think that's, that's really the, the key behind what, what we're doing. And like a lot of good ideas, it sounds very simple. It is an information challenge. The information isn't available to the doctors, so you go and make it so. So if, if I understand this correctly, what, what essentially your technology is doing is, is searching through all of the medical records against certain criteria to then alert, and you'll do this in primary care, so... Um, you know, GPs in the UK or, or family physicians in the US. And what you're going to do, I, I suppose, is, is produce a report to those, uh, to those primary care organizations that says who might have a rare disease and why. Yeah, that, that's precisely it. Yeah, you, you, you then, uh, you know, whenever a patient is highlighted, then you can then, you know, generate a clinical report that looks a lot like, you know, any clinical report that a doctor mm. would get. And in this clinical report, you can just inform the doctor telling them, look, you, you have this patient, there's a high chance that they have this disease that at this point, the doctor may not have even heard of before, or, you know, maybe at, in medical school a long time ago, mm. uh, this is a disease that affects, let's say one in a million people. Uh, these are the signs and symptoms that are in the medical records that would indicate why, you know, th th these patients is, is suspicious. And then here's the, you know, the clinical guideline that explains where this clinical criteria comes from. Here's the clinical pathway, the next steps that you should follow in order to, again, you know, further the investigation for that, for that particular patient. And this has worked really well with GPs in particular, because, you know, it's not like we're, we're not really telling them how to do their job. It's not like we're diagnosing hypertension or yeah. Alzheimer's, you know, yeah. like these are very rare diseases. And so even though they're, they're common 
when, when you take them collectively on an individual basis, it's very rare for this doctor to have seen that, that disease before. So it's, it's interesting. We get a lot of good feedback, you know, kind of, they tell us that it brings back the, the investigative aspect of medicine that they like so much, right? Like it's, it's almost like they, w- they win the lottery. Like, wow, I have a patient that is only one in a million. Like, you know, and, and these patients have been coming to the practice so many times there, you know, the, we call them frequent flyers almost, right? Like they keep coming to their practices all the time and, you know, asking for more information and just wondering what, what, what's happening or what's wrong with them. And so the doctors, just being able to tip the doctors and providing them new paths or new areas of investigation for these patients that are problematic, mm-hmm. uh, that are in a way high burden as well at the system level, it just makes the, a, a big difference. And so the, the feedback has really been very good from, from the GP side. Dude, I can remember being in my GP practice when I was a second year doctor running my own little clinic and, uh, you know, asking the, the, the proper GPs there for advice when I needed it and things like that. And there, there was a, there was a patient that, um, I'm surprised they made it to my clinic to be honest, but it was a patient that nobody could diagnose. And it was, for me as a clinician, as somebody that had learned in medical school and my first couple of years on the wards that, Basically, you know, someone has something, they come to hospital, you figure out what it is, you fix it and you send them home. All of a sudden, here was somebody that we had absolutely no idea, like absolutely no idea what it was. And I can can imagine your software in a GP practice. Like, yes, on one hand, the doctors, yeah, you're bringing that kind of I suppose the art of medicine back in, in, in finding that diagnosis. And they, they have, they have a patient with a disease, which they've only read about in medical school, which is exciting. But also I, I think for the clinicians themselves, you're basically giving them the ability to, to, to diagnose that patient. You're giving them the ability to, to, take that weight off their mind to actually then put them on the right treatment to get them in front of the right hospital specialist. That, that for me is the real gift that you're giving to, to GPs that that's all, that's all anybody wants to do as a clinician, right? Is just make their patients feel better because at the end of the day, you're not paid more or less based on how many people you get through the door, how well you do your job, quite frankly. So actually all, you're incentivized to just make your patients feel better because that makes you feel better. And I think it feels to me like that, that in itself is a is is a, is a huge gift. But the the other thing that I wanted to touch on was, you mentioned that yeah you're not that you're not the one diagnosing hypertension or doing anything overtly medical. You're a technology company that helps clinicians basically because you're sifting through information and you're presenting that information back to them. And you're you're very much a technology company, and I like that. I like the kind of I suppose the versatility of what you could do, not only in healthcare, but I suppose other sectors and other different things. Obviously, it's it heavily weighted towards what you're doing in rare diseases. Um, but it's interesting, yeah. isn't it, in the context of like identity, which you talked about personally, and wrapping your your own identity into the company and, and things. It's it's interesting around identity of do you consider yourself a health tech company? Do you consider yourself a tech company? Where do, do you care? <laughs> like, it's, yeah. it's 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 yeah. interesting. No, I think I think you're right, you know, and, and I think you're right. And, 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 and I think, uh, you know, digital health as an industry is something that, you know, came out a little bit from the med tech health state yeah. for a long time. These kind of terms were a little bit nebulous and they were all kind of merging with each other. Yeah. But I think in, in our case, digital health really says it all. You know, it's, it's like mm. health is already there. You know, we, we're building on hundreds of years of knowledge that, you know, we've accumulated in, in medical and clinical practice. And, and you just want to make sure that this information is being 
kind of distributed or democratized in the right way. And you're using digital in order to do this. You're using this ability of technology to scale that knowledge in, in, in the right way. And so, you know, I, I like to say that, you know, these kind of digital algorithm, these clinical criteria that we use in order to filter these medical records, mm. th these are criteria that already exist. You know, it's just that they're in paper formats yeah. that only humans can read. Yeah. They're not in structured way, you know, something oh, that, that, that's machine readable. So, so, you know, th these things are already in medical books. They're in the brains of the top <laughs> consultants in the countries. Yeah. And you just have to kind of download almost physically this information and then put it into a digital format in order to then apply it at scale. Because we, could just we, we cannot just wait for experts to be democratized. This is not the way that experts work. Today, you're going to have, you know, a couple of doctors that are specialized really in this very rare disease. And, you know, the, the, it's actually the, there's this funny story about if you look at the map of diagnosed patients in rare disease in, in, in the UK, you get to see that they're, they're, they're kind of spots of higher density in, in certain places. And, and we used to think that this, is, this was because of population, right? It's like, oh, there's going to be more people with rare disease in London. Because, but it turns out that if you look at the data a little bit closely, you realize that it's mostly because they are close to the center of expertise. And only uh. the center of expertise are good at diagnosing these patients. And so you, you realize that, you know, if you live, of course, in, in front of Great Ormond Street in London, one of the best tertiary hospitals in the world, for sure, you're going to get diagnosed fast. But if you're in the middle of, you know, the countryside and you don't have access or you don't happen to be in front of this medical doctor who happens to have an amazing background in genetics, then you, you're just going to be out of luck. And so it's really this idea of democratizing diagnosis by democratizing knowledge and making sure that, you know, all doctors in the country you know, almost passively get to a point where they can diagnose these patients much faster. And did the idea for working in this way in rare diseases, um, did you start with the idea that you wanted to work in rare diseases or did you start with, there's a clearly a problem to solve here? Like where, how, how did you, how did, how did this idea yeah. come to you? Yeah. Yeah. We, we, we started with genetics. I, I was, I was really into genetics. Because, okay. You know, when you look at genetics, I think that genetics is probably the closest one in, in, in the medical kind of education system that is to, to, to computer engineering and computer okay. science. You know, like I, I like yeah, to joke yeah, yeah. as well that, you know, computer code is much closer to DNA that, that we think it is. And there's loads of analogies that we use in computer science from the biological term, right? Like the idea really? of you know, computing information, this like binary code, this idea that there's like letters and that, you know, you, you, you're kind of looking at algorithms to, you know, decipher the genetic code there's loads of kind of interesting ideas that are emerging there. So I was really interested in that. I, was, I wanted to understand, you know, bioinformatics a little bit better. And then when you step into genetics, very quickly, you step into rare diseases because, you know, most of these rare diseases are, have a, a very strong genetic compound. And so we started looking at this and by, you know, talking to doctors, the, the top, you know, experts in genetics in the world, they, they would all tell us, you know, oh, amazing advances in sequencing, amazing advances in gene therapy in 10 years, 20 years, you know, there'll be gen th gene therapies for every disease. But, but the issue is still that we can't find the patients. We don't know where they are or we find them too late. And then at this point, you can't do, you know, certain treatment anymore. And so we, we realized that the, the, the challenge, there's also a huge challenge on treatment, obviously, but, you know, there's very smart people and competent that are looking at this problem. We, we, we found that on the diagnosis side, it really was information challenge. We didn't need a wet lab for it and we didn't need, you know, anything else and just pushing this information as, as, as far and wide as possible. Yeah, interesting, because then finding the problem is one thing, then creating a business is another. And I think it's interesting, there's a, there's a, a phrase which you said earlier, 
which is that individually rare diseases are just that they're extremely rare. And so the economics of looking for one rare disease doesn't quite work, but actually together they're relatively common. Do you know the numbers around that stuff? I mean, how, how many, what, what's the incidence of a rare disease, any rare disease in a population? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty crazy. I mean, uh, you know, there's more than 8,000 rare diseases and we're still discovering new rare diseases as, yeah. as we go. There's also some common diseases that are being delineated into rare diseases. Uh, interesting. So, you know, the, almost the sheer number of rare diseases is actually increasing as we understand better about- Of you course, know, yeah some of these common diseases so it, it's 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 pretty crazy the definition of a particular rare disease is, is actually not clear it depends on the country you know the u.s has a different definition than japan and right. europe has a different definition but uh, you know uh, on overall overall uh, if, you, if you look at all of them combined you, you have almost one in 20 people who have already wow and that just like breaks completely you know all <laughs> you know assumptions that we can have about wow. this market but 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 i agree with you i think for a very long time you know rare diseases were considered you know hard to tackle because if you were looking at one you were looking only at one but then with digital and with technology as it was a kind of the advances we realized that we could tackle it a little bit more kind of holistically and, and looking at these patterns that you know many rare diseases share and, and then st start to come up with, with solutions that we tackle them all. And, and that really, you know, helped us. So today we have a portfolio of almost, you know, 100 to 200 diseases that wow. are 200 rare diseases that, you know, we're, we're applying the same techniques and we're getting better and better at operationalizing this kind of digitalization of algorithms and encoding of information. So it used to take us, you know, six months to encode a disease. And today it took us, you know, a couple of weeks. Wow. So as we grow and we get to, you know, the thousand diseases mark, then, then we just automatize that, that, that process of, you know, getting the information in a machine readable format that is then able to be shared to, to, to the masses in a way, and the doctor masses in this case. And you've been doing this for, as you say, five years, and you've, you've obviously made some, or covered some incredible ground so far. I saw in a, a bit of press noise about you guys with a recent, um, a recent partnership, because you've, you've covered, we you cover quite a lot of GP practices now, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's it's been really good. I mean, you know, of course, the first couple of years were 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 really tough. It was mostly you know developing the technology, making sure that you know things were yeah. going to be you know working properly, understanding exactly how we were going to you know deliver that information to the doctors, all of the you know compliance, information governance that is behind it, the ethics behind it, the health economics, the value proposition that you have to put in front of the stakeholders. Like, there, there's so much in there already. And then I would say that about, yeah, about two years ago now, we, we kind of, we got a breakthrough it really. And, and we got into the NHS and, you know, now all of the things that we had worked on uh, had, you know, practical application. And instead of working on kind of retrospective data sets, we were working on like real life patients with, you know, real clinics that were trusting us to provide information to them. And so this has happened over the, over the last, yeah, years. And, and this has, you know, obviously leveled up the company completely. The moment you start dealing with, you know, that kind of data, there's so much more that you need to do. First of all, in terms of your processes to make sure that everything is clear, you have to start to go for, you know, um, regulations. So we're now CE marked and this has been like a huge, you know, big deal for us. Um, Congratulations. No, no, easy, no easy task. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that, that, was a, that was an interesting one as well. And, and, you know, it's a continuous process as well. It's not like it's, it's behind us. It's just like now part of the company really. But um, yeah, over the years, it, it's, it's been, you know, really, really well growing. And we're now ramping up the number of practices at an astonishing, you know, rate. So 
you know, we started with a few hundred thousand patients and, and today we're nearing the, the one million patient mark. And so we're, we'll try and, and, and push that to get to, to higher until we get the full population, but it's, it's going to take us some time to get there. It's very cool, mate, because it's an example of a health tech company, digital health company, tech company, whatever you want to call it, that had an idea, saw it through, stayed around long enough to get the breakthrough and is now then riding the wave of the optimism of health tech, the, you know, the, the, the whole infrastructure getting better. And now it's sort of, it's one of those, yours is one of those companies where it's like, this thing is a no brainer. Can, can the system just bend around it, please? And just, just get it adopted because it just makes sense, right? Why wouldn't you just increase the functionality of your primary care organization to just start diagnosing more rare diseases because it makes moral sense and you know <laughs> arguably more importantly for the scale but it does actually make financial sense as well yeah um, yeah, yeah because i imagine you, you know no sorry go on no, I, was, I was gonna say you know it's like the the, the the it's a bit of a, like the blessing and the curse of, of the industry you know and i think in digital health yeah. there's loads of things like that it's like it's it's incredible because obviously uh, you know what we do usually make, make sense you know any digital health company you know everyone has the incentives very aligned we all want to save patients life you know we all want to increase the patient yes. outcome you know it's very rare that there's a digital health startup that sits out there and, and is just like doing something that you you know you don't understand it doesn't make sense <laughs> it's, it's like you know, it's, it, the incentives are very aligned but at the same time it, it's it's very tough not to see it you know go faster because the system is just so big and so it has so many you know big kind of frameworks around everything that's happening and guidelines that that, that you have to follow so it's you know for for um, you know it's it's high highs and low lows mm. as i've always said in 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 you know companies and, and entrepreneurship and so you know you have to remember the, the good sides and the bad sides at, at different times but it's Overall, it's it's just been a, an incredible journey. Nice. And f- who who's your customer? Is it the primary care organization? Do they actually buy um, your your product? Yeah, yeah. So the, the the way that it works is, you know, the the value that we're bringing is obviously for for the patient because they get to get a diagnosis much earlier. But but if you look at the health economics aspect of this, you know, very simply, again, by diagnosing these patients earlier, and you know, sometimes we're talking about years earlier. We we're just publishing some some reports and some papers a, a bit uh, last year that, that was looking at you know some diseases where we have almost four four and a half years of diagnosis time saved. So, you know, during these four and a half years, there's just a lot of, you know, things that are going to happen that may not be necessary for that patient to go through. So, you know, there's some tests that are not going to be, you know, providing any results that are going to have the diagnosis at all. There's some treatment that are going to be given that obviously are going to be ineffective, uh, you know. And so all of this cost, all of this kind of waste, this healthcare utilization, we, we, we call it, is, is savable in a way. And so when we go to the you know, CCGs or to the commissioners or to the primary care you know, stakeholders that we're discussing with, this is really where the value, the value lies. Because obviously, again, everyone is aligned that we're saving patients' lives, but you know, there are a lot of other people trying to do that. So you, you need to have an edge as well, not only on saving you know, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the patient's life, but also time and money for the actual healthcare system. And, and this is how we're really negotiating the, the way that we're doing that. Nice. And how does it, how do you guys interact with pharma companies? Because I imagine there are pharma companies that are interested in the rare disease space for one reason or another. Do you get much crossover with the pharma industry? Yeah, totally. I mean, it, it, it's, it's pretty big. Uh, you know, I was reading a report that was saying that I think by 2024, almost half of the 
drugs in the FDA pipeline are going to be for rare conditions or orphan drugs. Whoa. So it, it's to say there's been quite a big shift between the kind of like big blockbuster drugs that, you know, pharma mm. have been developing over the last, there's just like been very interesting key drivers as well around the rare disease markets in, in pharma. Uh, you know, since we started, because the goal has always been the same of finding more patients and finding them earlier, we've had, you know, a, a lot of pharma coming and knocking at the door and understanding, you know, how, you know, they could help us find more patients or how they could help us, you know, grow our clinical footprint in the NHS. And so the thing with pharma is, is usually a matter of scale. I mean, the thing with pharma and rare disease is it's always a matter of scale. You know, if we're trying to find patients for a particular disease and that disease is one in 500,000, then you really need at least 5 million patients to start to, you know, be doing something impactful, yeah. at least for them. So, you know, we're in the, we're in the early days of, of how to, you know, interact with, with, with the industry. And I think this, this is going to grow as our clinical footprint grows as well. But mm -hmm. it's, it's really nice to see that, you know, in, in our case, the incentives align very, very nicely. It's like the patient is getting better, obviously, that's always first and foremost. And then you have the NHS happy to diagnose these patients earlier because it means that they're saving money on all of the management of these patients yeah. that is going to disappear. And then pharma on the other side, which, obviously are, you know, are part of the equations here and as a stakeholder in, uh, on, on, around the table. And it's very happy to see more patients kind of almost appearing and, and needing their, their yeah. treatment. So, yeah. so what's keeping you busy at the minute? What's, uh, what, what are Mendelian focused on at the moment? Is it, is it that pharma side? Is it, is it growing the, the primary care side and getting in more GP practices? What's the, what keeps you up till... <laughs> whatever yeah, time you yeah. wake up at the moment or go to bed at the moment it yeah yeah good. i mean we're 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 on a pretty big uh hiring spree at the moment uh we're hiring almost for four four roles so that there's there's a lot happening on that side but uh yeah you know we were looking at the objectives for for 2021 and, and again they, they're, they're very clear we, we just have to grow this clinical footprint i think 2020 yeah. was a year of kind of exploration for us to understand you know is what we're doing is working is, is this going to go and, you know, now with the feedback that we got with, you know, the, the, the kind of clinical validation that we have, the, the metrics, the, the papers that we've, you know, pushed out. And it, it's just seen now, indeed, that it's a no-brainer. And it's just a matter on, on go, of growing this. So we need to be quite fat. And so we're, we're hiring, for instance, for like a, an NHS partner partnership head who's going to really take ownership of this entire pipeline and, and grow this, this, you know, the number of patients, just the scope and the breadth at which we can, you know, operate in terms of, again, population health findings. Um, so that, that's a big one. There's also a lot happening, you know, in the rare disease field, as I was saying, over the last couple of weeks, there's been a, an amazing report, you know, who came out from the, from the, the government around um, rare disease initiatives and how it's called the rare disease framework. They're really talking about how in the next few years, we need to make a big effort. Diagnosis gets like a third of the report, obviously, you know, again, uh, the, the, the whole kind of digital aspect of democratizing the, the knowledge for rare disease makes a lot of sense. And so, you know, is it that they, 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 they heard of us or is it that, you know, what we're doing is very obvious? You know, it's, it's probably a little bit of both. We, we talked with the Department of Health last year when they were writing the report and, you know, we explained our philosophy behind how to do this. And it's very nice to be able to see it today, you know, as, as, as something that just is out there and is becoming more and more you know, common sense for, 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 for the NHS and for the industry in general. So, um, yeah, pretty, pretty busy with this, I would say. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm not surprised. And it seems like you, you, you're only going to get busier, which is not a bad thing in terms of, in terms of your growth and things like that, because as you say, there seems to have been a, f a few key moves from a kind of an infrastructure central point of view 
to really start to point towards rare diseases and to think more about genetics. I mean, I'm just looking at this rare disease framework, the framework now, now that you've mentioned it. And when you look at the priorities, you know, helping patients get a final diagnosis faster, that's what you do. <laughs> Increasing awareness of rare diseases amongst healthcare professionals, yep. Better coordination of care, yep. Improving access to specialist care treatments. And I mean, it's the priorities of what they obviously want to do from an infrastructure point of view centrally, very much aligning to what you're, or what you've been talking about arguably for the last five years, right? So it must be like, like an, another level of, of kind of, maybe not exciting is the right word, but validating certainly to be like, yeah, this is what we've been saying all along. And thank goodness people are starting to do it around us now, because this obviously means yeah. that other companies are going to start to align to this too, because if these are the priorities centrally, everybody's going to start pulling in the same direction, which is interesting, which means probably more partners and more partnerships and, people thinking about things in, in the same way as you guys, which which it must feel, um, as I say, validating on one hand, but kind of exciting on the other. No, for, for sure. And, and you know, it, it's it's just it's just amazing. Every, every morning you wake up and there's something happening in the field. Yeah. There's a new company starting, there's a new, you know, report shared by the government or a new priority by an academic health science network. So, I, I you know, I, I can't complain. It, it's a very active field. And, and also, you know, I, I wouldn't say that this is new. It's not like we pull up the problem sure. of rare disease, you know, like Genomics England, which is probably one of the biggest scientific projects that the UK has gone through and clinical, you know, work over the last 10 years, uh, you know, is, is, you know, half of this Genomics England project is around rare disease. The other half is probably around cancer. But, uh, you know, the idea that we're making huge leaps in how to get more information on the genetics of these patients and how to diagnose them faster. Uh, you know, we didn't have to wait for the rare disease framework to, to, to talk about these things. Uh, you know, I remember in 2015, one of the you know, leading, the chief medical officer had a, a report talking about the NHS priorities and the report was called Generation Genome. So, you know, it was very clear what, what the, the, at the time the priorities were. It's also one of the reasons why we're doing this in the UK. And, you know, when we started the company, we were in the US. We came here because we, we felt there was so much happening and it kind of provided such a nest for these kind of, 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 of things that we're doing. So, no, it's, it's, wow. it's hugely, hugely exciting. I didn't know that, that you started off in the US. I, did, I didn't know yeah. that. That actually speaks... That speaks volumes. That's actually a really nice story in itself. You know, the fact that you've cho you've chosen the UK because of, I suppose, our attitude to it, our infrastructure, the way it works, and things like that. That's um, yeah, 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 no, really totally. And, and you know, in, in in many aspects as well. And again, you know, we, we a lot of people have been talking about this at, at length, but we're not going to talk about the healthcare system in, in the US. I'm getting more and more familiar with it now because it's it's very relevant to what we do as well. But sure. you know, in the UK, we we do have. Uh, quite an, an amazing, you know, system that is digitalizing very fast. And, you know, there's so much, so many low hanging fruits still in here that, that needs to be picked up that, that need to really show how these systems are going to work around the world. And, uh, you know, everyone is going at the, at, at the end of the day, everyone is going in the same direction. It's always going to be, you know, value-based medicine and we want to centralize as much as possible. And, 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 but but the UK just provides an amazing hotbed for us. Awesome, for that's really nice to hear, man. That makes me that makes me proud of our little place. To be honest, the fact <laughs> that you've chosen us for this because we've got the infrastructure. Um, so I, I suppose my my final question would be: You've mentioned uh, you know your CE marked. You're covering a couple of hundred or few hundred diseases now. You've mentioned a milestone of a thousand coming up. What's the future for Mendelian? What are the timelines that you guys are working to? What what sort of impact are you looking to have over the next few years? 
Yeah, sure. Well, it, it, I was I was interviewing a few candidates before that, and I, and I was telling them about about really that you always push the ambitions a little bit higher. And that's right. I was telling them we reviewed the objectives with the team, and like we think that we need to go to you know five million patients by the end of the year. But also, you're a candidate for this role, so I'm actually going to say ten. And you know, everyone <laughs> this because it, it just works every time. But uh, no, it, we, we're just really going to be focused on, on growing the clinical footprint. As, as yeah. I said, it's, it's just yeah. we need more patients. We need more medical records that, so, so that we can, you know, just find more of these rare disease patients. And then the moment this becomes, you know, um, a common practice, it's just going to make a huge difference. Almost, you know, organically, the, the, you know, I, I, when we started the company, we were saying, you know, this six year, seven years odyssey on average just needs to be reduced and if you know if we do our job well and you know in five years when we'll be speaking then the average time to diagnose a rare disease patients you know maybe cut by two and maybe cut by three who knows and and i think that that's really the, the goal and you know we've been we've been very clear on this since the very beginning it's a no-brainer mate and you know i love what you guys are doing you know that i love what you guys are doing um i think at the end of the day that it just it's so simple it's so straightforward it's it's clearly needed you've got the center moving in your direction now all signs are pointing to huge successes for you guys and huge huge successes for patients therefore for the clinicians that are treating them i think there's a it's a win-win-win for pretty much everybody involved and um yeah i really look forward to seeing the success that you guys are going to have i mean Final question for me would be, do you have any asks of our audience? And so lots of people listen to this podcast from the likes of GPs, the likes of, uh, you know, administrators, people in the UK, US, all around the world. Um, what would be your ask for everybody listening? <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for this. Yeah, look, I mean, I, 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 I would lie if I was not mentioning the, the, the hiring speed that we're in the, in the middle of. So by, by all means, you know, if, if you think you can help us, uh, you know, we're hiring for almost, you know, every type of role, technical role, NHS partnership I've mentioned, uh, you know, even on the regulation side, we're also looking at people now. So, um, yeah, if, if, if you feel that you, you fit in or even if you don't, then you're just really passionate about what we do. You understand the kind of you know, drivers around what we're trying to do, the digital, the healthcare, the access to information, the rare disease. There's just there's just so much to be done. So, you know, by all means, you know, reach out. Awesome. Uh, really, it's been an absolute pleasure, my friend. Good to speak to you and I'm sure we'll catch up soon. Thanks, James. For sure. Thanks a lot. This is great. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. Remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.